we're going to get into the scriptures this morning. Holy Spirit, you are present here in our midst. Whether we feel or believe that you are here working in us, you are. You take us through this journey. You give us the life and the insight and the ears to be able to look to Christ and see him. You give us comfort in the darkness. You, you are the rod and staff. And we ask as we come to the words that you breathed, as we, as we read these words, we might see the one you glorify, the Son, Jesus Christ. And Jesus, as we look to you as the author and finisher of our faith, the anchor of our souls, the the model, the firstborn of the resurrection, the lamb slain from the foundations of the earth, the one who was and is and is to come, the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end, we are reminded of just how extraordinary it is that you walked among us. You taught some of us and your words echo in the spirit that you gave to us down to our present day. And you tell us that you were sent by God the Father lovingly, caringly, graciously offering yourself for our sins. Father, may we call to you as we hear these words, as we are prompted by your Spirit and looking to your Son. May we know the One who is sovereign over all things, God above gods, King of all kings, Lord of all lords. And may we not only listen, but may we hear and obey and be transformed. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we pray all this to you as your church. Amen. We're going to turn to the book of John in chapter 13. We're actually going to spend three weeks talking about um, the moment when Jesus is sitting with his disciples at the Last Supper. John has a very unique version of this. He tells it in a very different way than the other three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And it's because of who John is, who John is and who John is writing to. And remember, we, we talked about, we've talked about over the course of the last year how John is writing to this second and third generation of believers, the ones who weren't there when Jesus did these things, the ones who were born into the church, the ones that don't make the distinction between Jew and Gentile anymore. They, they've moved beyond those distinctions and instead they are, they're living in the church. 
They're the ones who, who don't know a world without the resurrection. And if you think about how significant that transformation of thinking had to be, I mean, those of you that lived through September 11th, how hard is it to remember what the world was like when you could just walk someone to their gate at the airport? And, and we think about how common knowledge is now. Our kids have never gone to airports where they didn't have to take off their shoes, right? In fact, my daughter the, takes the, the train uh, down to, to Lynchburg um, and it blows my mind that there are no security checks. They just get on the train. I'm like, wait, there's no TSA? How does this work? You know, um, apparently the government hasn't figured out how to do it yet. Trust me, they will. Um, but uh, this, this, this whole idea, right, of, of, of how something so significantly changes one generation of thinking. Those of you that lived through Vietnam, you know how Vietnam changed our, our world and our thinking. But then the next generation comes along, and it's just part of their world. They, 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 don't, they don't see it as a before and after. Well, that first generation of believers, man, the resurrection, that was huge. But then their kids, they grew up in church being told that Jesus had been raised from the, the dead, but they never saw Jesus. They've never been to Palestine. They never went to Jerusalem. They didn't see this stuff. So they're growing up in this world, and John is writing to them about how important it is, how significant it is that they see Jesus. And we've seen miracles and signs and all of these things that are happening in chapter 12, uh, in the first 12 chapters of John. But then we get to chapter 13, and John tells a story that I think sits in his heart. Now, I could be completely and utterly wrong about what I'm about to tell you. It is totally what my dad used to call sanctified imagination. I think that John told this story to the Apostle Paul. Now, I can't prove it, but I think the way that Paul, and and by the way, if you don't know this, I think Paul was a songwriter. Now, people go, what? The Bible doesn't have songs in it. Yes, it does. And Paul loves songs. And in the book of Philippians, chapter 2, he writes what we call, today we call it the the hymn of Christ. Or the hymn of emptying. And it's a a song, and you can read it. In Philippians 2, it's a song, and it talks about how uh, Jesus emptied himself and took on the form of a servant. Though he he was equal with God. He took on the form of a servant, and, and that's why he's being exalted. Now, I personally, and I can't prove this, I, there's absolutely zero historical or textual evidence for this, but I think one day Paul was in Jerusalem, new believer, on fire for Christ, ready to serve, and John pulls him aside and says, Paul, I want to tell you a story about Jesus. And I I actually think that that's why Paul always refers to himself as the servant of Jesus Christ. I think this story transformed Paul from kind of a raging lunatic. And if you read the first book of Acts, the first parts of Acts, Paul's kind of a raging lunatic to the servant of Christ. I can't prove it. I get to heaven. They could tell me I'm completely wrong. But, But I find it very hard to believe this story is so tremendous. And so we're going to spend a few weeks on this. Chapter 13 and verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew 
that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And during supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus knew that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God and he rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist and then he poured water into a basin, literally a wash tub, and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around them. And I want, you to, I want you to catch on what happens here. I want you to catch on what happens here. Jesus already knows his betrayal is coming. He already knows in verse 2 that the devil had already put it in the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. And just let this blow your mind for a second, knowing that Jesus still serves Judas Iscariot. Now that's a crazy idea. But he knows that this is going on. But look at verse 3. I want you to see what Jesus knows. He knows first that the Father had given all things into his hands. Jesus knows who he is. Jesus knows who he is. He knows what he is called to do and be in the midst of these people. And that he had come from God. He knows why he's here. Where he came from and why he's here. And that he was going back to God. And he knows the people he's about to minister to are going to be left without him. They're going to have to learn to be followers of Christ without Christ there. Remember, John is writing to second and third generation Christians. And so he says, Jesus knew who he was, what he had come to do, and that you were going to have to try to live a Christian life without him physically in the room. And so, verse 4, he rose from supper. Uh, In those days when you ate, you, you reclined on your side. And so Jesus gets up from the table So this isn't just, you know, very quietly, discreetly slipping out of the room. Jesus is doing this intentionally. He rises. He lays aside his outer garments. And he takes a towel and he wraps it around his waist. And then he fills, pours water, and he begins to wash their feet. Catch what Jesus is doing. Knowing who he is, why he's there, and who the people are that he's about to do it for, he intentionally gets up from the table, he takes off the garments, his outer garments. And in Judaism, your outer garments marked your place in society, depending on the thickness of your hem and whether, whether your thing went over your left shoulder or your right shoulder and, and how your phylacteries were wrapped. Uh, phylactery is a, a little box that has a Bible verse in it and a leather, little leather box, and, and Jewish rabbis would wrap them either around their arms or around their heads. Um, even back then, um, we don't tend to think, I mean, you know, we've got Swedish Jesus in our minds. I know we do. All right, but this is Jewish Jesus, um, and Jewish Jesus would have had a passage 
probably wrapped around his hand Deuteronomy 6.4, the song that, that uh, Nicole and Amanda sang, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one, um, is probably, was probably what was in his phylactery um, at the time. We can't be sure. It could have been a psalm. Um, but he takes all of those markings of being the rabbi, being the teacher. He puts them aside. And we, we read towel and we think shower towel. Right, we're thinking terry cloth. All right, what this is is it's the row. It is literally clothes designed to be dirty that a servant would wear. And when you came into a home, um, that servant was wearing this garment, and he would wash your feet with one piece of it. He would rub your, you know, get your feet wet, rub them, and then he would take the other side of it and he would dry them off. And and it was the ultimate degradation to have to wear another person's filth. I mean, think about that. So Jesus sets aside all the pieces of his office, his role, his standing. He stands up from the place of honor where he was sitting to do this. And I want you to see the juxtaposition. This isn't actually the sermon, but something for you to take home. The juxtaposition of his divine exaltation. He knows Uh, who he is. He knows why God has sent him. He knows his purpose and his place. He takes his divine exaltation. Look at it being juxtaposed with his self-humiliation. No one makes Jesus a servant. Jesus chooses to do this. It is a choice that he makes. Um, The son's choice. And this is the tension of a word we haven't mentioned a whole lot lately, but um, is a very, very important concept in Hebrew. It's going to come up on the screen behind me. Um, it is the word chesed. Um, the, the H with the little dot on the bottom of it is pronounced ch. All right? Ch, like you're cleaning your throat. Chesed. Chesed appears almost 280 times in the Hebrew Bible. It is translated somewhere in the neighborhood of about 50 different ways, depending on which translation of the Bible you're using. The definition that we use for chesed, it's translated as loving kindness, grace, mercy, uh, compassion. It has a lot of different meanings. Um, but chesed is when the one to whom, for whom I can do nothing gives me everything. Jesus is the embodiment of, of God's chesed. A God for whom we could do nothing. We can't impress God with our faithfulness. God doesn't look down and go, wow, I am lucky to have him. God is all-knowing and sovereign and omnipotent. We come up with new ideas, right? And we go, aren't we great? And God goes, yeah, whatever. He, he is he's boundless and infinite and the eternal now. And, and every, every term that we could use to describe him is, is limiting to his reality. We can do nothing to add to God. And yet in Jesus, he gives us everything. Jesus takes on the form of a servant. And here he symbolically does it. But it's what he did when he took on flesh, when he was, when he became, uh, when he was born the child, when he was conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of Mary and then born a child. He, he took on, he gives us everything 
For God himself to walk in our flesh is for God to give us everything. For God, the Son, to offer that flesh on the cross and then to take it up again is to give us everything. We are alive and breathing and given an opportunity to serve and minister because of God's chesed. And you ever want to study it, um, I, I can give you several books that go through and, and study it. Mike Card has written one, which is absolutely phenomenal, uh, discussing this in the, in the Old Testament. Um, in the New Testament, by the way, chesed rolls into our concept of grace. Chesed is the foundation of Christian grace. Um, it is the, the basis of it. So here we have the divine exalted Christ putting on the garments of a servant to wash the feet of his disciples. And because John seems to love when he and the other disciples don't understand what Jesus is doing. And he particularly likes to pick on his cousin Peter. We get a moment with Peter. Here we go. Jesus pours the water. He's going to wipe the feet. He comes to Simon Peter and Simon Peter says to him in verse 6, Lord, do you wash my feet? Now, this is one of those moments. Um, the day after Christmas, I was just telling a story to Larry and Jim and Sheila. Uh, the day after Christmas, I de- decided to change the faucet in my kitchen sink because it was leaking and the sprayer didn't work. Um, and so I went to Lowe's. I got a new one. I, figured, I knew my mom was coming up to visit us on Christmas. I figured I'd be able to get it done before she showed up. So naturally, she showed up with me under the kitchen sink, moving a faucet around, and I'm not kidding, my mom says to me, she goes, what are you doing? And I told her, I'm replacing the kitchen sink, kitchen faucet. And then she said to me, why? I don't know, mom, it just occurred to me it would be a great thing to do the day after Christmas. Just walk around and change water fixtures. This is the level of what Peter says. Jesus has a basin, he's got a towel, he's dressed as a servant. Everybody else in the room seems to be in awe of what Jesus is doing. And Peter says, "Uh, are you going to wash my feet? I don't understand what you're doing. That's really what Peter's saying. I don't understand this. And Jesus says to him, Verse 7, what I am doing to you, doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. I'll explain it in a minute. That's really what he's saying. He's not saying you'll understand it down the road. I'm going to explain what I'm doing. That should be enough, right? If you're doing something and your kids, your kids come up to you and ask, why are you doing that, dad? And you say, I'll explain it in a minute. Let me finish. Do any of our kids stop asking questions? Like, isn't that, that's like permission for them to keep asking. So why are you doing it? Why are you using that tool? Why don't you use that tool? Is the light too, do you want me to turn the light on and off? Will that help you? Why, you know, and they, they start, you're trying to get this thing done. And they're, they're like, they want an explanation. Well, Peter, although Peter is a middle-aged man, um, and probably is, is older than Jesus. That'll throw your, your brain for a little bit of a loop. So he's a disciple, but he's, he may be older than Jesus. And by the way, he's married. He's got a mother-in-law. So he's got life experience. Not because he has a mother-in-law. 
just because just he's older. Man, guys, come on. Anyway, so he's he's a. Uh, He's, he's got to, so he's looking at this and he knows servants, this is not something you do. This is something you, this is something you humiliate somebody by doing. Peter said, so Jesus says, I'm going to explain in verse eight or eight, Peter says to him, and in our English translation, it says, you shall never wash my feet. The, the Greek text, actually, Peter says, you will not wash my feet in this age. Like, like, there is no way in, in all of history and existence that I'm going to let you wash my feet. I love when Jesus is trying to do something in our lives and we try to explain to him a better way to do it. <laughs> Jesus is trying to, to teach a lesson. He's just said to Peter, Peter, I will explain it in a minute. I've got a plan. And Peter goes, well, you're not washing my feet. Never. It's amazing how proud of his humility Peter is. Jesus answers him, if I don't wash you, you have no share, no part, no contribution, no connection to me. Jesus says, you need the lesson I'm teaching. You need this. Just hold on with me for a minute, Peter. Peter goes, oh, okay. Then in that case, verse 9, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. He's like, just bring it on, Jesus. I'm ready for what you're doing. At this point, I always picture Jesus going like this. I think Jesus facepalmed his disciples a lot. He says, Jesus said to him in verse 10, the one who is bathed does not need to, need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. Now what he's saying there, by the way, they, they're, at, they're at a ritual meal, so they would have already washed their hands and their, their head. They're, but they had to walk there, and so their feet are unclean. So they need to get their feet cleaned. That's the only thing that's left. They've already, they've already cleaned their faces and their hands. But, but Peter's like, well, if washing my feet is good, then washing my hands and my head too, that would also be great. Like, like I need more of whatever it is you're doing that you've told me you've expl- you will explain to me, but you haven't explained to me yet. And so even though I'm blowing your point because I keep asking questions, now I'm going to keep going. My foot's already so far up my, in my mouth, I'm just going to keep shoving. I'm just going to keep going. This is what Peter's doing. Do we all have this experience in life? Do we not have this experience with God as he starts to do something in our lives and we ask God to explain and then we kind of get this feeling that it's going to make sense in the end but we keep pushing and then God starts to do something we go, that's awesome. I want God to do even more of that thing. Jesus, you should give me everything of this. And Jesus is sitting there, would you just calm down? Paul, Peter is a faith ping pong ball. He says, you are clean. But not every one of you. Now, that had to have confused Peter. But at this point, he knew he wasn't supposed to ask any more questions. For he, Jesus, knew who was to betray him. That's why he said, not all of you are clean. Now, the point of this is not Peter. And I think it's important that you you recognize this. The point of the story is not Peter. Verse 12, when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments, 
and resumed his place, literally reclined back into his space. So Jesus finishes washing the feet of the disciples, which was not just the 12, there are other people there too. He washes the the feet of the disciples, um, and then he takes that dirty rag and he puts it aside, he takes his garments, he puts it back on, he fixes everything, he rewraps his phylactery, he sits down at the table. Now here's something you might miss. Jesus is now unclean because he washed their feet, according to the Jews. That doesn't matter to Jesus. He sits down, he puts himself in his place, and he says to them, do you understand what I have done to you? And Peter's going, I'm not saying anything. I'm just going to sit here. I'm just going to wait. He's going to explain it now. This is Jesus explaining. He says, you call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. He says, you've got the right idea here. You call me teacher and Lord. You're right. I am. But if then, if I then, verse 14, if I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. Remember, and I'm going to keep reminding you this, Judas is in the room. The man whose arrogance is going to lead him to betray Jesus. He thinks he knows Jesus' mission better than Jesus, Jesus does. He's going to betray his best friend. He's in the room. And Jesus is saying to him, you also ought to wash one another's feet. Now, Think back about this. All the way back through the book of John, there was a moment when someone washed Jesus' feet. And what did the disciples say? What a waste. You know, why would she do that? And Jesus says, you're wasting yourself by not being willing to wash the feet of those who could and will betray you. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. Verse 15. For I have given you an example that you should not, that you should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is, and if you read the English Standard Version, it says messenger. This is the Greek word apostle. And if you read it, And remember, who is Jesus talking to? The apostles. Nor is an apostle greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do these things. Now... There's a shift in the next verse because this is important. Remember, who is John writing to? Second and third generation of Christians. I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen. He's saying this isn't just to the 12. This is a message to the church. To the whole church, through all ages, the servant is not greater than his master. 
He who ate my bread, but the script, uh, I know whom I have chosen, verse 18, the scriptures will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. He's talking about Judas. I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me. Whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. And Jesus is teaching us a lesson about what it means to be a Christian minister, servant, leader, husband, wife, child, grandparent, employee, employer, teacher, counselor, guide, friend, whatever you want to fill it in. He says, can we start with the thought that no matter where you are in life, are you willing to wash the feet of those below you, against you? There's an extraordinarily symbolic thing that happens from time to time um, in in the the Roman Catholic Church. And I'm not a Roman Catholic, but I believe in the power of symbols. From time to time, the bishops of of the, the Roman Catholic Church are required to wash the feet of prisoners. You say, well, that's a weird practice. Admittedly, odd. But it has tremendous significance. If you think about the message that's being sent, which is that the leaders of the church are never better than those that they serve. Now, I wish it was a message that churches heard more often. But this idea that Jesus says to him, I know who I am, and you are not better than me. Can we all agree we're not better than him? Can we just go ahead and agree on that one? We're good on that one? Hopefully you're good on that one. If you've got questions about that one, we'll talk. All right? Because we are a Christian church. We're actually kind of named after him. All right? Jesus says, I know who I am. And I'm willing to lay it aside and wash your feet. Because although you cannot give me anything, I am prepared to give you everything. Don't worry about putting it back up. It's okay. Um, Jesus is living out loving kindness, compassion, grace. And I'm going to say it again one of the people that's in the room is going to betray him. One of the people in the room is not listening and he knows it. Now let's be honest with ourselves. If you were up here, you were in my spot, and you could look out across the room and know who is actually paying attention and who isn't, how would that change the way you behave? If you were able to sit there and identify, you just had, you were telepathic. You were like Heather and Nicole, they share a brain. Um, somehow you could, somehow you could just know who was listening and who wasn't listening. Would you not disregard those that are not listening? 
If you knew that your best friend was going to betray you down the road, if you had the ability, the knowledge to know that your best friend at one point was going to betray you, was going to take money, was going to do something crazy, they're going to steal your lawnmower and never return it, or just one socket, like one metric socket. Is there anything more annoying to you guys with tools when somebody takes one socket and doesn't give it back? All right. That you knew that he was going to do, your best friend was going to do this to you. Or you knew, even better, you knew that your spouse was going to do something to you down the road. Would you not alter your behavior toward that person? Don't lie to me and tell me you wouldn't. In your natural, natural setting, without Christ, just based on your own personal preferences, you would absolutely try to shelter yourself from that person. And here is Jesus kneeling on the ground, washing the feet of 11 disciples that have no idea what he's doing, and one that's going to betray him. That's what it means to follow Christ. To be a servant in this world. As followers of Christ, we come to Jesus and we accept him as Savior. But to be a Christian in the world is to serve and love a world that betrays us. To preach the gospel and to stand for a truth that the world will reject. Now let me, let me make this very clear. To serve, to, to serve those God has called us to serve is to serve Jesus who served us. And to serve Jesus is to serve God the Father. To deny that we have a responsibility to love and serve and show chesed and grace and compassion to the world is to deny that Jesus showed that to ourselves. Do you get that? That's Jesus' point. He is saying to the apostles, you no longer have the right to choose who you will preach to and who you will not. Who you will serve and who you will not. You are now my servants. You are my disciples. And I serve God. So to serve me is to serve Him. And to deny the service I commission you to fulfill is to deny me, which means to deny God. That's a heavy weight on our behavior as Christians, isn't it? Now let me give you a little bit of a, a solve to that. Jesus repeatedly makes the point, however, that to serve is not to turn a blind eye to sin. This is where many mainstream denominations have gotten it wrong. They've said it's all about service, it's all about helping people, it's all about working. So we can't ever upset people, we can't ever tell people that something is wrong, we have to be ultra, ultra tolerant, we can't ever, ever argue about anything, no matter what anybody says, we just have to smile and say, Jesus loves you. No, you can say Jesus loves you and that's sin. Jesus did it. And as long as we're doing it because he did it, not just because we decided to do it, we're allowed to do that. Did you know that it is okay to upset people you love and serve? How many of you have ever worked in retail? The customer is always? No, they aren't. We all know that's not true. 
My sister's a manager at Dunkin' Donuts. She had a young man walk into the room and walk into the Dunkin' Donuts and say, I would like four squirts of culotta mix in a cup. And my sister went, ew, no. And he said, someone else did it for me. And she goes, I don't care. Now, my sister's abrupt, admittedly. She's a bit bossy. You've never met her. There's a reason. Um, but, but, the, but the reality is, sometimes the people we serve, they're wrong, and they need to be told they're wrong. That's how we serve and love them. Jesus didn't go, I love all of you guys. I'm washing your feet. Whatever you do, it's not important. It doesn't matter. What does he continually point out? There's one among you. I know what you're doing. I know where you are. Don't think I don't notice. Don't think I don't see. But I serve you and I love you and I pour out my hesed on you. We live in a world where we have come to the belief that there are some people who are entitled to hear, some people who are entitled to be served, some people who are entitled to receive the gifts that the church has, and there are some people that aren't. And it's okay for us to make that call. It is not. I don't go looking for weirdos, but they find me. Possibly because I are one. And when God brings somebody into my life, I don't sit there and go, wow, God, you, there's got to be a better friend. I would love to live in a world where I did not have to, this is nothing, I would love to live in a world where I did not have to look up to every single friend I have. I just want one friend shorter than me. Just one. I mean, even my friend's wives are taller than me. All right? I, I would love that, you know, but that's not who God gave me. And I would love for my friends to all be morally pure, not struggle with addictions, not have marriage problems, uh, not, 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 not have all the various and assorted issues and questions that they might have, but that's not who God called me to serve. He gave me who he gave me. And that means he loves them and he wants me to serve them. You say, but they may never come to faith. That doesn't matter. Jesus poured out his life for Judas and Judas was so messed up he couldn't even receive it. He never heard Jesus' words of forgiveness. He goes and commits suicide after Jesus is crucified. He just couldn't receive it. But that didn't stop Jesus from loving him. It didn't stop Jesus from serving him. It didn't stop Jesus. It didn't stop him. And then when the disciples, and I'll close with this, when the disciples wind up in situations that they never thought they would find themselves in, the Apostle, Paul, or the Apostle Peter in the book of Acts at the house of Cornelius the centurion walks through the door to a Gentile's home. They go and get him. He's had a vision. There's a whole bunch of stuff that goes on. He walks into the home and the first thing Simon Peter says, he walks through the door and he says, you guys know I'm not supposed to be here, right? Okay, let's get down to the Jesus stuff. He knows as a Jew he's not supposed to be there and yet God had called him to serve these people and so here he comes. He's going to serve them. The Apostle Paul, a Torah-observant Jew to the end of his days, absolutely committed to his faith, 
Paul, I don't believe that Paul ever, although he says that it's, it's permissible to eat uh, meat offered to idols and all those things, I don't think Paul ever broke Torah. I think he was an, a Torah-observant Jew the whole time, even though he knew that that was not required for salvation. He argues against people saying that it was required, but that was who he was. And yet Paul walks into Greek academies and agoras and Roman prisons, and when he gets there, he goes, okay. Y'all need to hear about Jesus, so let's go. How can I serve Christ by serving you? How different our world would be if Christians walked around saying, how can I serve Christ by serving you? Would you join me in a word of prayer? You didn't call us to be masters. You called us to be servants. You did not call us to hatred. You called us to love. You did not call us to pacification. You called us to truth. And Jesus, we're just trying to be your church. Outside the doors of this church is a community that is 97% irreligious, doesn't go to church, doesn't care you know Jesus it's no surprise we live in the most unchurched unchristian heathen section of a nation that's got a lot of heathens in it and we can choose to judge or we can choose to serve Jesus where will you take us in 2023 where we can pick up the towel and the basin and wash the feet of those